0: The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chayaz Samuel and things are about to get weird. Why hello there, thank you so much for joining me today for a brand new instalment of Things Are About To Get Weird. It's been an amazing couple of weeks actually, there's been so much going on. First of all, I had the pleasure of chatting to the spooky queen herself, Yvette Fielding, for a recent episode of her podcast, Paranormal Activity. She was so lovely and incredibly kind about our podcast too. So a big thank you to Yvette for being so supportive. We've also reached new heights in the various podcast charts too. As I'm recording this, we've peaked at number 11 in the Spotify true crime charts. And I'm honestly beyond grateful. You are all amazing. Okay, let's jump right on into the subject of the strange but true story I'm going to be telling you about today. To me, this tale is exactly the kind of thing I would expect to hear after clicking on a podcast called Things Are About To Get Weird, because it is absolutely bizarre. In a way, I struggle to place it into one particular category, other than, I guess, unsolved mystery. It might be a true crime case, but then again, it might not be. There could very well be a huge paranormal element to it, or not, depending on what you believe. This is the story of the life and death of Richard Lancelin Green, who passed away back in March of 2004. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I feel like I remember hearing something about this case at the time, and when I stumbled back across it a few days ago, I knew I had to dive deeper into it. A quick warning that there will be discussions around a person possibly taking their own life in this episode, so do be aware of that. But if you're feeling suitably intrigued, allow me to introduce you to this fascinating man. Richard Lansling Green was born on the 10th of July 1953 in the northern English town of Bebbington, which was at the time part of my home county of Cheshire, but is now within the bounds of Merseyside. His mother, June, was a drama teacher who was well-respected within the local theatrical community, and his dad, Roger, was a renowned writer who specialised in retelling traditional stories, particularly for younger audiences. Roger was actually a close friend of C.S. Lewis, the author of The Chronicles of Narnia, and his love of literature appeared to have a profound impact on his son, Richard, as we will very much come to find out. Now, the Lansing Greens are, I think it's fair to say, not exactly short of money. For over 900 years, the family have occupied their ancestral home of Polton Hall, which is a beautiful country house with stunning gardens and a whole lot of history. And whilst there's not a huge amount known about Richard's childhood, there's one key piece of information about him that would come to shape the rest of his life and that was his intense fascination with the fictional detective Sherlock Holmes. Now, if any of you had an exceptional interest in something as a child, you'll know how much it can absolutely consume your imagination. I know for me, one of the very first things I was completely obsessed with as a kid was the second Lion King film. I remember wanting to collect anything relating to the film that I could and I treasured every single Lion King 2 pencil or sticker or little plastic figurine that I owned and I can only assume that Richard had those same feelings as I did when it came to Sherlock Holmes. His dad, Roger, was actually a member of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, which was founded in 1951 and is still active to this day. He was understandably delighted that his son was following in his footsteps as a genuine devotee of the character which had been created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle back in 1887. But what Roger could have never known is that, in 2004, Richard's infatuation with Sherlock Holmes would end in tragedy, under circumstances so mysterious that they'd be worthy of investigation by the detective himself. Now, before we get to what happened towards the end of Richard's life and the bizarre events surrounding his untimely demise, let's head back to his childhood. As his enthusiasm for all things Sherlock Holmes grew and grew, so did his collection of items relating to the character. Richard actually started to try and recreate Sherlock's Baker Street living room at Polton Hall, using and adapting whatever he could get his hands on to achieve that Victorian-style feel in the most accurate way possible. Then, when he was around 11 years old, he started to watch the Sherlock Holmes television show starring the actor Douglas Wilmer. And this helped to take his obsession with the character to whole new levels. Richard began to write to Douglas Wilmer, telling him all about his Sherlock collection, which included some first edition copies of Arthur Conan Doyle's books. The very next year, in 1965... He became the youngest ever member of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London and his dedication to not only the stories featuring the detective but to collecting memorabilia connected to Arthur Conan Doyle was evident to everyone who knew him. In fact, even from being a child, Richard told people that his life's missions were not only to compile the most comprehensive bibliography of Conan Doyle's works, but to write the ultimate biography on Sherlock's creator too. This lifelong dream of his is important to remember for later on in this story, so do keep it in mind after Richard finished his compulsory education, he decided to attend Bradfield College in Berkshire before being accepted to Oxford University to study English. It's thought that after finishing his degree, he spent some time travelling and exploring the world, before settling in London to continue his extensive studies of everything related to his favourite author and character. As you can imagine, his collection of items relating to the author continued to grow. He was often found at auctions, bidding on Conan Doyle-related lots, and he travelled extensively in search of elusive pieces. By 1983, Richard felt he'd gathered enough books and manuscripts to complete a project he'd been working on with a man named John Michael Gibson for years. And so the first edition of A Bibliography of A. Conan Doyle was published. But this was far from the only piece of work Richard published on the topics of either Conan Doyle or Sherlock. Some sources say that he either wrote, compiled or curated over 200 different published works, and he was and still is considered by many to be the ultimate authority on both the author and his most famous character. In 1996, he became the chairman of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London and held the position until 1999. I'm sure no one there had any doubt that he was the right person for the job. He'd essentially dedicated his life up until that point to the tales of Sherlock's adventures. It's often said that Richard had an encyclopedic knowledge of the character, which I'm sure is absolutely true. But people had a lot more to say about him than just comments related to his work. By all accounts, Richard was very well respected and very well liked. His excellent sense of humour is mentioned often, and he was generous to not only his friends and family, but to his fellow scholars too. Though despite all of this, he was described by the Guardian newspaper as a loner and a bachelor. However, I think we need some additional context here because what that Guardian article later goes on to say is that Richard was gay and although he was known to have had partners, none of them had ever lived with him. When you consider that same-sex marriage wasn't legally recognised in the UK at the time and that a lot of what was written about Richard happened around 2004 and earlier, I think words like loner should be taken with a hefty pinch of salt. From what I can tell, he had lots of people in his life who cared about him. He just wasn't married to any of them, essentially. But let's get back to his work. Whilst Richard had experienced a lot of success with building his Conan Doyle collection, which was thought to be the largest in the world and worth somewhere in the region of £2 million by the early 2000s, there was a glaring gap in his archive. And here begins the saga of the so-called Lost Papers. When Arthur Conan Doyle passed away in 1930, a collection of his manuscripts, letters and diary entries mysteriously disappeared. And I'm sure it goes without saying that to the ultra-dedicated fans of his work, this felt like the ultimate cliffhanger. Where were the papers? Had they been destroyed? What information did they contain? Were they being kept safe somewhere, away from the public's gaze? And if so, why? Naturally, these were all questions that plagued Richard Lancelin Green. Although the first edition of his Conan Doyle bibliography had been published, he was still determined to update it as and when further writings came to light, and the lost papers really were considered to be the Holy Grail. But here's where things start to get very strange indeed. For decades now, there have been whisperings about the alleged Curse of Conan Doyle. The theory that, as so many people connected to the author died prematurely or suffered from bouts of severe mental distress, being tied to him would put you in the path of intense misfortune. Two of the most notable examples, often cited by writers discussing the curse, are of Conan Doyle's sons, Dennis and Adrian. After the author's death, Both men inherited large sums of money from their father's estate, but tragically, neither son would live to see old age. On a trip to India in 1955, Dennis passed away at the age of just 46. However, some years previously, he said some very interesting things about the relationship he continued with his father, even after the author had died. He told a journalist in New York... He never failed to advise me on my personal and professional relationships. Since his death six years ago, he always gave me good advice. The only time I have not followed his instructions, I've almost been killed. I find that last line so chilling, considering Dennis would end up passing away so young. And just 15 years later, in 1970, Adrian also died well before his time, suffering a heart attack at just 59 years old. More on that in a moment. It's well known amongst fans of Arthur Conan Doyle that he had a deep interest in spiritualism and was absolutely enthralled by the idea of different paranormal phenomena. As a believer in ghosts and spirits myself, I find the fact that Dennis spoke about communicating with his father from beyond the grave particularly intriguing. But as awful as these examples of the supposed curse are... What does this have to do with Richard Lancelin Green? Well, during the 1990s, Richard became fixated on the idea of finding the lost papers. And during the course of his investigation into their whereabouts, he discovered something that troubled him. It seems that years and years previously, Adrian had been involved in stashing away his father's letters and manuscripts in a locked room at his Swiss chateau. Apparently, his siblings had agreed to this measure and this on its own seemed perfectly reasonable to Richard. But following this, it became apparent that Adrian had siphoned off a number of the documents with a view to sell them privately and pocket the proceeds for himself. But before he could carry out the plan, he suffered his heart attack and died before the papers were sold off to collectors. And this event gave rise to a whole new element of the curse theory. And that was the idea that the lost papers themselves were cursed. What makes all of this even more mysterious is that after Adrian's death, the documents went missing once more, at least to the public's knowledge. And it was here that Richard hit a wall for quite some time. Although he was dedicated to locating the lost papers, he was consistently blocked by most members of the Conan Doyle family who were incredibly secretive about pretty much every aspect of the documents. Their contents, their whereabouts, even whether or not they still existed. That was until Richard knocked on the door of Arthur Conan Doyle's youngest child Jean. At the time she was in her late 60s and was described as tall, elegant and imposing, which I was very envious of when I read it. I would love to be described as any one of those things, but sadly I am none of them. Anyway, it seems that Jean took a real shine to Richard and felt quite touched by his real commitment to honouring her father's work and making sure that history would not forget all he wrote during his life. Sherlock Holmes stories, and letters to important figures of the day alike. Jean ended up telling Richard that although she couldn't show any of the papers to him there and then, she promised that upon her death, she planned to leave all of them to the British Library. That way, Richard would be able to study them to his heart's content, and there would be the potential for the public to see them on display one day too. But despite Jean's good intentions, after she passed away in 1997, things did not work out quite as expected. Following Jean's death, Richard waited patiently for the papers to be handed over to the British Library, but the day simply never arrived. In fact, it seemed that the trail had gone cold in terms of locating the documents, and Richard was frustrated that they wouldn't be able to form part of the three-volume biography of Conan Doyle that he was working on. That was until March 2004. This is going to be a lot, so prepare for things to take a very weird turn. One Sunday morning, early on in the month, Richard opened the Sunday Times newspaper and was horrified by what he saw. The lost papers had been found, but rather than being donated to a public archive, they had made their way to the famous auction house Christie's and the next step was plain to see from the title of the Christie's press release. As in all capitals, it read Lost Archive of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle to be offered at Christie's in May. The 3,000 manuscripts, draft book ideas, notes and letters, which featured correspondence between Arthur and figures including Winston Churchill and Oscar Wilde, were set to be sold to mostly American private collectors for millions. To say that this upset Richard is an extreme understatement. The papers seemed to have been brought to Christie's by three distant relatives of Conan Doyle, with no mention of Jean and her wishes, and Richard immediately sprang into action to try and stop the sale. He contacted Christie's and asked to inspect the papers, and when he did so... He concluded that they were the real deal, but he also made a bold allegation that there had been mix-ups with the wills of various members of the Conan Doyle family, and that the papers must have been stolen after Jean's death. But despite pleading with Christie's to halt the sale, the auction house insisted that everything was above board, and therefore there was no reason for them to pull the items from sale. Richard was infuriated, and he began to contact every organisation related to either Conan Doyle or Sherlock Holmes that he could. After explaining the situation to them, he produced a very compelling piece of evidence to support his claims a copy of Jean's will, which included the line, I give to the British Library all my late father's original papers, personal manuscripts, diaries, engagement books, and writings. I mean, it's pretty hard to argue with that, and the various group members generally concurred. Many of them banded together with Richard and ended up presenting their case to several members of parliament as they felt that the whole matter was so firmly in the public interest that the government should step in and block the sale. As the month of March progressed, their entire campaign became more and more intense and gained some significant press coverage along the way. But for Richard, it also got a lot more personal. He had confided in his sister, Priscilla, that he was being threatened and even sent her a strange note containing three phone numbers, which he asked her to keep safe for him. He was also convinced that he was being followed by someone he described to a friend as an American who was trying to bring me down, and he started to become wary of talking on the phone or even in his home as he was sure they were bugged. And that he was being spied on. Priscilla has described her brother's behavior during the latter part of March as disturbed and remembers that he was very stressed and was sleeping very little. Needless to say, she had grown incredibly concerned about Richard's well being, and after not being able to contact him on the night of the 26th of March, she headed to his London apartment at noon the next day to check on him. When she knocked on the door and received no answer, she phoned the police and they forced entry into Richard's residence. What they discovered was both completely devastating and totally incomprehensible. 50-year-old Richard's lifeless body was found on his bed, surrounded by stuffed toys, Sherlock Holmes memorabilia and a half-empty bottle of gin. Around his neck was a cord thought to be a shoelace with a wooden spoon tangled up in it as though it had been used as a tightening device. Richard had been garrotted and was pronounced dead at the scene. His poor sister, I can't imagine how awful it must have been for her to be there that day. But whilst Richard's family and friends were of course grieving their loss, they were also consumed with questions about what on earth had happened to him. And when I say that they were perplexed, I feel that that doesn't even begin to cover it. Let me take you through some of the theories his loved ones have spoken out about, as well as what was officially ruled. The coroner who investigated Richard's death actually ended up returning an open verdict. He said that whilst suicide seemed the most likely explanation, certain elements of the scene didn't fully add up to that. First of all, there was no note left behind, which virtually everyone who knew Richard agreed would be totally out of character. Secondly, and perhaps most obviously, garrotting would be an incredibly painful, difficult and unusual way for someone to take their own life. The more you think about it, as terrible as it is, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. The coroner also noted that murder couldn't be ruled out. So, really, it left his family and friends with more questions than answers. Now, presumably, because she really couldn't find definitive proof of either suicide or murder, Priscilla was supportive of the coroner's open verdict, although she did speak about how she didn't feel her brother was suicidal and had no history of depression, saying that the whole situation had a sense of helplessness about it. Richard and Priscilla's older brother, however, took a stronger stance in his belief. He told The Guardian, quote, It doesn't seem like suicide, in that there's no note. He was very organised and tidy. I can't believe he would have done something without leaving some kind of evidence. When referencing the theory that Richard could have been murdered, he said... It's entirely possible, that's all we can say. And this angle was expanded on by Richard's writing partner, John Michael Gibson, in a deep dive interview with The New Yorker. He expressed his intense scepticism that Richard could have taken his own life by garrotting himself and referenced testimony by an expert with decades of experience who said he'd only seen one single case of self-garrotting in his 30-year career. John said he found it strange that, although it's very likely he was one of the last people to talk to Richard on the phone before he passed away, the police never interviewed him. But it gets even stranger. Remember how Richard was convinced that an American was trying to, quote, bring him down? Just before his body was discovered. John had called Richard's apartment and was greeted by a weird message on his answering machine. In his own words, he recalls that, "'I got an American voice that said, "'Sorry, not available.' "'I said, what the hell is going on? "'I thought I must have dialed the wrong number. "'So I dialed really slowly again. "'I got the American voice. "'I said, Christ Almighty.'" "'Oh, it's so, so bizarre.'" What's more, John claimed that the police had not dusted for fingerprints or collected any other kind of forensic evidence from the scene, which makes absolutely no sense to me. For balance, it is worth saying that some friends of Richard's did actually believe that he had taken his own life. Nicholas Uteshin, who was the editor of the Sherlock Holmes Journal and had had a 40-year friendship with Richard said that they had spoken on the phone just hours before he died and that his mind seemed, quote, deranged. His words, of course. He said he had no doubt that suicide was the correct verdict and that Richard had essentially lost his mind. But the thing that really seemed to capture people's imaginations was the idea that his death related back to his links with Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle, tabloid newspapers in the UK ran with headlines like Curse of Conan Doyle Strikes Holmes Expert, and some Sherlock enthusiasts started to comb through the archives, trying to find any reference in the stories about self-garrotting, in an attempt to work out whether there was any concrete connection there. Apparently, there is a very brief mention of a garrotter in one tale, but the context is all wrong, and it would be way too far of a leap to suggest there was any real link there. Essentially though, what all of the theories really boil down to is that we truly have no idea what happened to Richard. It's a genuine mystery and one which I think should have been investigated so much more thoroughly than it was. After doing all of my research and absorbing everything I've read about the case, I find myself stumped, yet also suspicious. There was no sign of forced entry into Richard's apartment, nor anything so out of place that it would have been recorded as looking like signs of a struggle. So that's odd. But then there's an account from a friend of Richard's who said that he'd drunk wine with him at dinner on the 26th of March and it would have been 100% out of character for his friend to go home and start drinking gin as he would never ever, ever mix the two. This same friend, Owen Dudley Edwards, also highlighted that there would be a real motive for him to be murdered, as he was obviously trying to block a very lucrative financial deal from happening, but also speculated that there could have been additional motives we don't know about. All we do know is that in May of 2004, just two months after Richard's death, the lost papers were sold. Many of the items went to private collectors, but around 1,200 pieces were bought by the British Library in the end. And whilst so many of the facts surrounding this mystifying case remain unknown, I believe one thing we can be sure of is that Richard would have been delighted that so many of the documents would end up being accessible to scholars and enthusiasts for many years to come. The mystery of Richard Lansling Green's death does feel like it's pulled from the pages of a detective novel, though it's important to remember that to those who loved him, it would have been so painfully real. I really hope that one day, if new evidence does come to light, that this is one mystery that can finally be solved. Well, I am sure I don't even need to say this at this point because you are always straight on it. But I would be fascinated to hear your thoughts and theories on this case. What do you believe happened in Richard's final few hours? Do you have a definite theory? Or are you more like me where you feel confused yet suspicious? And how much weight do you think the idea of the curse holds? There are loads of ways that you can get in touch and let me know what you think. And I'll be giving you a full rundown of them shortly. But first it's time for, you guessed it, the outro feature I affectionately love to call Weird Media. I feel like it's been a while since I talked about a Netflix show in Weird Media. I think I've been more of an Apple TV and Amazon Prime viewer recently, but the series I wanted to share with you today is a real treat. If you're a fan of Diane Morgan or Charlie Brooker and you're familiar with his weekly wipe show, I'm sure you'll already be well acquainted with Philomena Kunk. She's played by Diane and she's this incredibly poorly informed yet really sincere character who speaks about topics in a way that is so off the mark that it's hilarious. Over the years, she's appeared in all kinds of specials like Kung Kong Christmas and Kunk Kong Britain, where she explores the different topics in a mockumentary style. And the results are amazing, not least because when she's interviewing experts as part of the show, I believe that all they're told ahead of time is that they're going to be talking to a BBC journalist. So when she turns up and begins asking them bizarre questions, and saying wildly incorrect things to them with such conviction, it's the most entertaining kind of cringy viewing you could imagine. Which brings me to the latest Philomena Kunk series that was recently added to Netflix Kunk on Earth. It was fantastic. I laughed out loud so many times. It was done perfectly. If you're partial to a TikTok scroll, you may even recognise some of the clips because they became trending sounds on the app, like the one that starts... It's hard to believe I'm walking through the ruins of the first ever city. You know which one I mean. But honestly, there are so many quotable lines from the show. I'm sure you'll pick up a new favourite every episode. The theme of Kunk on Earth is that she explores different landmark moments or periods that have made our world what it is today. From religion, to ancient civilizations to scientific advancements. There are five episodes and you just don't want them to end but I think each one is better than the last. So it's just a fun ride from start to finish. If you like the humour of characters like Alan Partridge or even David Brent slash Michael Scott from The Office, I think you'd love Philomena Kunk. They all share that same kind of personality type, I guess, where they're completely wrong about most things or go about them in ways that seem strange to everyone else. But there's something weirdly endearing about them. If you've never experienced Kunk before, I'd perhaps watch a few clips from the Charlie Brooker shows on YouTube first, just to get a feel for the character before you jump into Kunk on Earth. And if you do check it out, I would love to know what you think. Write some super quick shout-outs to the sources which helped me pull together the research for this episode. There was the Guardian article I mentioned a few times. That was by David Smith from May 2004. There was a very long and detailed feature in The New Yorker by David Gran from December 2004 that I would definitely recommend checking out if you have a spare half an hour. The website arthur-conan-doyle.com was really helpful. There's so much information on there about the backgrounds of many of the people we've discussed today. The website bestofsherlock.com was also really useful as was visitportsmouth.co.uk. Richard actually left his own archive and collection to the city of Portsmouth in his will and they paid tribute to him on their website. The Daresbury Lewis Carroll Society website was also helpful and I first came across this story in a piece on cracked.com by Robin Warder from October 2017. Okay, here are all of the ways you can get in touch. On Instagram, our handle is at thingsgetweirdpodcast. And on Twitter, slash X, it's at about to get weird. On Facebook, if you do a quick search for things are about to get weird, you'll find both the main podcast page and also the private discussion group as well. Our email address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. And I will leave links for both our Patreon page and our merch page in the show notes. I am always super appreciative of your Spotify star ratings and Apple podcast reviews. And if you fancy sharing the show with any of your friends who enjoy the stranger things in life, that would also be incredible. Thank you so much for listening today. And I can't wait to be back with our next episode very soon. So until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird.